Welcome to the Starfleet Leadership Academy, a Star Trek podcast told through the lens of leadership development. And now, here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me. If you didn't listen all the way to the very end of the last episode, you are currently expecting to hear about discovery despite yourself. But as I started taking notes to prepare for that episode, I realized the random episode format of this podcast just isn't going to work for Discovery. If you haven't seen it, each season is an arc that tells a single story. To to jump around would just be far too unnerving. So whenever the random episode generator comes up with a Discovery episode, I'll just take the next one in order. So let's get started with episode three of the first season Context is for Kings. It's been six months since we last joined Michael Burnham. The Federation is at war with the Klingons, and it is not going well. Burnham, the prisoner, is on a transfer shuttle. The last episode, if you remember, ended with her being stripped of all rank and imprisoned for life. She and three other prisoners are headed to a dilithium mining job, and they're, they're giving her a pretty hard time. The Mutineer, they call her. She and 8,000 others are dead because of you. Well, Michael actually corrects her to... 8,186. To put that number into some context, 110 years later, in the Battle of Wolf 359, the Borg were responsible for some 11,000 deaths. Losses of this level in 2256 would have been absolutely devastating. There's an issue with the shuttle. The pilot heads out into space to deal with it. Why not? We see the pilot spin out into space and hear that the tether has been disconnected. Yikes. Prisoners begin panicking, rightly so, when a bright light descends upon them, the tractor beam, and the USS Discovery is there to bring them in. We fade to the opening credits and get ready. This is one of the last chances we're going to have to even take a breath in this episode. It moves fast and packs a ton in. Commander Landry, the chief of security... one of the final five, takes custody of the prisoners and explains they'll just be here long enough for them to repair the shuttle and get them back on their way. She's short, curt, to the point. Kind of stereotypical television military through and through. There's some really cool production values here as they're walking through the corridors. Lots of people milling about, PA announcements going on. This feels very lived in and very active. On their way through, we learn Discovery is a science vessel, but there is a ton of security around. They spot some unidentified badges on some of the crew. Really, what they're trying to show is that strange things are afoot at the Circle K. They're going to grab a bite to eat, I guess, and head into the mess hall. And Burnham runs into Kayla Detmer. She was a shipmate on the Shenzhou. Detmer now has some cybernetic implants, presumably as a result of injuries since they last saw each other. Detmer looks at her and moves on, ignoring her. So Burnham reluctantly sits down with the other prisoners, and they, they start right in on her. And bam! We've got our first Star Trek fight. Oh, but this is not the Star Trek fighting we've seen before. Burnham busts out some Susmana, Vulcan martial arts. This is pretty sweet. Landry breaks it up and takes Burnham to see the captain. She steps out of the turbo lift and onto the bridge, and the guilt trip continues. Standing there is Saru, looking right at her. 
Landry just moves past him and dumps her into the captain's ready room. Really dark in here, and the captain has a standing workstation, a setup that many in the ergonomic community would applaud him for. If you listen and look closely, you'll see that there's a Tribble in there too. Captain explains he keeps it dark in his room due to an injury from a recent battle. I like to think it makes me mysterious. He introduces himself as Captain Gabriel Lorca. And he starts talking her up, saying he's read her file, reviewed the court-martial transcripts, and he, he's a fan. Burnham starts connecting some dots, though, and guesses that her being there is not an accident. Lorca just deflects the question and proceeds to try and recruit her. He says it's going to take three days to get their shuttle back up and running, and he plans on utilizing her skills and talents during that time. But she refuses. She explains she just wants to serve her time but he blows her off. I'd prefer to serve my time without getting involved. <laughs> you think I care what your preferences are? I'm not a chauffeur, there's no free rides on my ship. He says his mission is to win the war, period. And then he dismisses her. Oof, this, this is rough. This is a very different Starfleet and a very different work culture than we've seen in Star Trek before. On one hand, they're at war and losing. That will impact a leader's approach, in later seasons of Deep Space Nine, they're also losing a war, and they don't resort to this authoritative style that we've seen so far. That is, I mean, of course, more than a century in the future from here, but even in this episode, this episode is, is more than two centuries ahead of where we are today. In an earlier episode of the Starfleet Leadership Academy, when we looked at Enterprise's strange new world, I talked about how often we hear that Starfleet is not a military organization. So far though, at least on Discovery, this feels like it is absolutely a military organization and an old school one at that. So that being said, let's look at Lorca's position and how he handled, based on what we know so far, this situation. We can assume that apparently he has an extreme need and he requires the brightest minds. He references Burnham's expertise with quantum physics, for example. Looking at his other constraints, he has a very limited amount of time, just three days. He needs Burnham, and he needs her now. I'm sure, as leaders, we, we've all faced something at least somewhat similar to this. You've got an urgent need with limited time, and you need to make some assignments based on skill and strength instead of maybe position and preference. But when you make those assignments, do you do it like this? Do you just tell the person how it's going to be and then expect it all to just go great? In my opinion, you can take an extra 10 minutes and work to enroll this person in the idea. You can help paint a picture that makes them, makes them actually want to help. Even, even just knowing the little bit about the ship that we do at this point, I, I think we can walk through a, just a kind of a better way that, uh, that this could have been handled. Look, Michael, we are facing a threat that is destroying our very way of life. We're experiencing hunger, poverty, and social unrest again, all things we believed we had resolved. You, you're an expert in quantum physics, and while you're only here for three days, you can contribute to this fight. You can help solve complex problems that could give us the upper hand that we desperately need. I don't know, something like that. And yeah, that was a terrible Lorca, like not even, not even almost close. Small spoiler alert here. Lorca continues to want Burnham as an active member of his team, if not his crew, and he does a better job with this later on in the episode. In the meantime, Landry escorts Burnham to her quarters, which she'll be confined to when not working. There are two racks in the room, both clean and made up. She lies down on one and just starts to take a breath. 
when suddenly the door opens and Cadet Sylvia Tilly barges in. This is so neat. They, uh, they told me because of my special needs that I couldn't have a roommate, which was kind of a letdown because a roommate is like an automatic built-in friend. And, and then they told me that I was going to have a roommate. And so now I, I guess that's you. And now, Tilly isn't really like anyone we've met on Star Trek before, at least at least not as far as Starfleet goes. She talks about her special needs, specifically allergies necessitating special bedding. For those of you who do have allergies, um, you can request a foam rubber pillow. As they talk, well, as Tilly nervously talks and, and Burnham curtly responds, it comes out that Burnham is the infamous mutineer. Infamous is, is when you're more than famous. This man, El Guapo, is not just famous, he's infamous. This kind of shuts Tilly up as the, then suddenly the lighting changes and the ship goes to black alert. Black alert. Black alert. Burnham asks her what's going on. You weren't briefed? No. Well then I can't tell you, sorry. And then Tilly turns her back to Michael and just ignores her. Despite her awkwardness here, Tilly shows some of what brought her to the game. She keeps her mouth shut, loose lips, sinks ships, and that's not gonna be Tilly. Burnham, heading out, runs into Saru, first officer Saru. They're friendly, but there is definitely some serious tension between them. He leads her to engineering and advises her to report to Lieutenant Stamets. Before she goes in, though, she attempts to apologize, but she struggles. Saru hears her, but he doesn't accept the apology. And you are someone to fear, Michael Burnham. And he politely threatens her. Know that I intend to do a better job protecting my captain than you did yours. She spends a moment absorbing the interaction as he walks away before, before she heads into engineering. Now we're still getting to know Saru in this series, and there's a lot more to come about him. But we do know that there has long been a professional rivalry between these two. Captain Giorgio knew how to leverage that rivalry and get the best out of each of them. But now, six months later, Saru finds himself in a leadership position and Burnham is no longer in Starfleet. Well, 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 how the turntables. What he does in this moment though, is very instructive. He's polite and cordial, even, even friendly with Burnham here. In fact, his openness with her, I believe, encourages her to attempt her apology. I think he made it safe for her to open up, but she faltered. She couldn't say the words. She couldn't say, I'm sorry. And he pounces immediately, but not, not in a negative, aggressive, or hostile manner. He even goes so far as to acknowledge the attempt, but then he is crystal clear in his language and in his expectations. He does not respect her, and he thinks that she's dangerous. He offers her the respect of, of, of telling her this, at least, but he then outlines what will happen if his expectations aren't met. This is leadership with a problematic individual at its finest. As XO, he has to carry out Lorca's orders and allow Burnham to work with the crew, but he can draw boundaries around that to ensure the safety of the ship and the crew while carrying out the captain's orders. Okay, on you. Think about that problematic team member you've worked with in the past, or, or that you're working with right now. I'm not going to ask if you've ever worked with one, because you have. I mean, we all have. And when you did, did you handle the situation like Saru did? Honestly, respectfully, and with clear expectations and clear consequences if those expectations weren't met? Or did you do what, at least in my experience, most managers and leaders do? Nothing. 
just complain, maybe talk about the person behind their back, or, or passive-aggressively change their assignments and projects. Either way, either way, take a page from Saru here. Burnham heads into engineering. There's a group of people working at various stations. It's really quiet in here. The music is very ominous. As she's looking around, Lieutenant Stamets comes out and just starts grilling Burnham. Says, I was told to expect a Vulcan. She explains that she grew up on Vulcan and attended the Vulcan Science Academy. To which he responds, My uncle Everett plays in a Beatles cover band. It hardly makes him John Lennon. He just hands her a data disc, assigns her to reconcile some code, and she, she gets right to work. Quite some time passes, we see a shift change while she continues working. Stamets takes a call from Strahl, his counterpart on USS Glenn, a ship conducting the same type of experiments as Discovery. Strahl explains they've hit a breakthrough of some kind, and they're going to conduct an aggressive experiment here later in the day. Burnham interrupts, and she tries to get more context on her assignment. She's struggling with the various sciences. She brushes her off and heads into a secure chamber. It's interesting here. He uses a breath scanner to enter. Seeing that breath scanner, Burnham, being oh so clever, gathers some drool from Tilly as she sleeps because, of, of course, of course Tilly drools while she sleeps. But she uses that to mimic a breath into the scanner and it gets her into the chamber. In there, she finds a lush forest full of different fungi. Lorca, in the meantime, gets a classified transmission. He comes out and announces there was an incident on the Glen and the entire crew was lost. They're going to investigate. He assigns both Landry and Stamets to head an away team, and Lorca insists that Burnham goes along. Stamets protests, but Lorca isn't hearing it. He's very impatient, very short, but he does... He does pause to sympathize with Stamets, acknowledging that he lost a good friend in Strahl today. Hmm. Seems, uh, seems maybe Captain Archer should take some notes from Lorca. See the Strange New World episode that we referenced earlier there. To validate his order, he asks Saru's opinion on Burnham since they've served together. And Saru, continuing his pattern of honesty, states that... Her beauty aside, she is... The smartest Starfleet officer I have ever known. And Lorca snaps at Stamet. And he knows you. The shuttle is headed over to the Glen. They've added a security officer and Tilly to the team. She lets uh, she lets everybody know this is her first boarding party, of course. But she and Michael are talking. Tilly is sharing a lot about herself, but but Burnham, Burnham is showing that, that she's a very good listener. As they approach the Glen, Stamets is analyzing the hull. He and Burnham play some etymological back and forth, and we learn a lot about the experiments that Stamets and Discovery have been conducting. Stamets and Strahl see biology and physics as the same thing at the quantum level. He says that spores are the building blocks of the universe, so it's, it's not physics or biology. Physics as biology. When the war started, Starfleet conscripted Strahl and Stamets so they could presumably weaponize their research. He closes by basically saying Lorca's going to get what he wants out of her, and, and, and anyone for that case, because that's, that's exactly what he does. On the Glen, Landry is leading the boarding party, and they encounter levels of gore and horror that we have never seen on Star Trek before. Bodies are twisted and broken. Helical trauma, they call it. I mean, it's it's really horrifying. They see a batleth on the deck, indicating that Klingons are on board. They hear a sound, and Tilly snaps her phaser up and takes charge. It's one of the Klingons. Doesn't attack, but rather 
cautions them to be quiet. Is he shushing you? When out of nowhere, bam, some massive, terrifying creature attacks and kills the Klingon. It immediately turns its attention to the boarding party and they beat feet to engineering. They get there with a few seconds to spare and secure the doors behind them, but it's not going to last long. The creature, that seems impervious to phaser fire, is about to bust through. They start pulling logs. They're inspecting the area. They find a navigational device that was unexpected and alterations in the reaction cube. Uh, so they so they stow those away. Just as the creature busts through, Burnham takes charge of the situation. She shoots it to get its attention and then takes off through the Jeffries tube. She's leading it away from the boarding party while reciting lines from Alice in Wonderland. The rabbit hole went straight on like a tunnel for some way and dipped suddenly down. So suddenly that Alice had not a moment to think about stopping herself, but instead found herself falling down a very deep well. Creature's size slows it down in the tubes, and this gives Burnham the chance to rendezvous with the shuttle. This is a really intense sequence as she drops in safely, and the shuttle takes off. This is such a cool scene. Her nearly subconscious knowledge of the ship's layout allows her to use her size and her speed to evade an absolute beast. This scene really reminded me and took me back to submarine service and what we went through to get qualified on there. Because everyone's life depends on each other. Everyone on the boat was required to have the most intimate knowledge, every aspect of it. And this, in the Star Trek sense, was a great example of how knowledge like that can save lives. Back on Discovery, Saru walks Burnham to Lorca's office. He lets her know the prisoner's shuttle is scheduled to leave within the hour, and she assures him that she'll be on it. Again here, she she reiterates that she she just she just desperately wants to serve her sentence. He acknowledges her contributions to the ship, though, during her time on board, and then he has has this great line. You were always a good officer. Until you weren't. He says he wishes things had gone differently and compliments her as, uh, as she heads into the ready room. She steps in, and Lorca immediately invites Burnham to join Discovery as a member of the crew. He explains the war gives him the right to supersede the court-martial, but she refuses, and she suspects that things aren't quite what they seem. Same feeling and same thing she verbalized in their first encounter. He asks open-ended questions of her. He's trying to see how much she knows, I think. She believes that the experiments have been to develop a spore-based biological weapon. Lorca teases her a little bit and then orders a site-to-site transport down to engineering. They get down there, and he asks her to enter the reaction cube, which she, for some reason does. He grabs a canister of spores, mycelial spores, and releases them into the cube. He explains that they're creating an organic propulsion system, not a weapon. The black alerts, those happen when they're using the spore drive. The belief is the ship can travel anywhere in the entire universe in an instant. Soon they'll begin to fold space, far off in the control rooms of spice gas, traveling without moving. Lorca wants to use this for military purposes to overwhelm the Klingons, but he also sees the exploratory possibility. He speaks with hope, with drive and passion. Blink, you're in the Lari. Blink, moons of Andoria. Blink, you missed Romulus. All those planets, all those places, all those species seen and yet to be seen. And you're home like it never happened.
In this moment, he is sharing everything with her and he's working to enroll her into his vision and this mission. This is the exact thing I thought he should have done at the beginning of this episode. Universal laws for lackeys. Context is for kings. After painting this picture, he again asks her to join the crew, this time though, as a chance to help end the war that she started. And Burnham agrees. The prisoner's shuttle takes off and Saru's threat ganglia pop out. Senses a threat. Oh boy, is he in for a surprise when he finds out what Lorca did. Burnham's unpacking in her quarters until he is absolutely ecstatic that she's staying. She tells Michael, I'm going to be a captain someday. The thing is, is that there are still some things I need to learn. And I know that you were one of the most highly regarded first officers in Starfleet, and I have read everything there is on Georgia. In hopes that Burnham can help her learn the things that she needs to know to do that. Discovery destroys the Glen, can't leave any evidence behind, and we join Landry and Lorca in a macabre laboratory of some kind. There's what looks like a Gorn skeleton, various weapons, dissected creatures all over the place. He looks into a large, dark room in the lab with a, with a force field over the entrance. Suddenly, the creature from the Glen charges it and is stopped by the field. Lorca retrieved that monster from the Glen, and he's saving it. Man, this was a great episode. Action-packed, tons of world-building, and a feel to Star Trek we haven't experienced before. Aaron Harberts, one of the executive producers of the first season of Discovery, explained the, the first episodes, the Vulcan Hello and Battle to Binary Stars, were, were more like a prologue to the series. And this, this was the actual pilot, or the, the actual first episode of the real story. Either way, be it the pilot or the third episode, this is the first time we've met most of the characters. And in this one single episode, I feel like we have a good handle on who most of them are. They, they packed a lot into this episode. We see Michael Burnham in a very different situation than she was in in the first couple episodes. But but really at the core, she's very much the same person, just just minus her minus her spark. As she did before, she inhabits her role and her lot in life. Through most of this episode, she she's essentially a zombie just going through her life. Respectfully, I owe a debt for my crime. And it'd be best I prefer to serve my time without getting involved. But not just through the motions, if that makes sense. Even as a zombie, she has intent in her actions. But, but her intent this time is to stay below the radar. She just wants to pay her debt to the Federation. What I think is fun is her interaction with Tilly at the end. She has purpose again, and someone that looks up to her. This is going to be a really interesting character dynamic as the story continues. A foster mother on Vulcan used to read it to me and her son. She and I were the only humans in the house. That's how I learned that the real world isn't always adhere to logic. Sometimes down is up. I really appreciated the characters from the Shenjo, Detmer and Saru. Both in their own ways, they made Burnham literally come face to face with the consequences of her choice. And now she's going to have to live with them. Lorca is, by far, the most unique captain we've encountered so far. I'll talk more about him in the command code section, but I was immediately drawn to his character. Who is he? What's his motivation? Is he a warmonger or is he really an explorer at heart? There's a lot. There's a lot for us to learn about him. As much of the first two episodes of Discovery serve to differentiate it from classic Trek, I think this episode did even more. We saw a militaristic side to the Federation that we haven't, we really haven't seen before. The, uh, the phasers shoot blasts instead of beams. And I'm honestly not really sure how I feel about that. 
and a wild new technology that has the potential to change everything about this franchise. This is a great episode that sets the tone for this season really well. If you've watched this before, there is, there's a pretty massive twist in just a few episodes. In, fa- in fact, that twist was going to start unraveling in the episode we were originally going to watch. Kind of might help explain why I'm handling Discovery the way, the way, I, the way I'm going to. But if, if you've watched this before, you know there is a huge difference between the first and second times you watch this season. It's really masterfully done. It's really fun to see the little hints that they drop, even, even this early in the story arc. To do the first season of this show right, in, in, in my opinion, you watch it the first time, one episode at a time, maybe maybe one episode a night. Then go back, watch it again, this time binge it. And that really gives you the full genius of how well they constructed this season. Command codes verified. Oh, where to start? Let's see. We had some we had some real promising lessons from Saru. We 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 talked about this a little bit already. Then there's Lorca. Whew, what a what a complicated approach this guy takes. Well, let's let's talk about Saru first. So far, through the Starfleet Leadership Academy, I'd I'd say Spock has given us the strongest example of a first officer. So far. When you look at the qualities that make Spock stand out, offering an alternative opinion to the captain, restating and reinforcing orders and regulations, and then ultimately supporting the captain's direction and order, Saru demonstrated all of these in this episode. I think he made it clear he doesn't agree with Lorca's methods, but he understands his job to be sure that they're carried out. On top of that, his soft skills are enviable. He is direct in his communication, but not aggressive. He's able to call an individual out, in, in this case, Burnham, but not in a threatening or accusatory manner. I really appreciate his dry, direct honesty. Now, I don't know if you have ever been on uncertain ground with your boss before. I know I sure have, but it would be great if they just told you how it was instead of dancing around the issue. I also appreciate his fairness. He hasn't just written Burnham off because he sees her as a as a danger. He's willing to, in a somewhat controlled circumstance, give her opportunities to lend her strengths to the greater cause. It comes out, for example, near the end of the episode, that he was the one that recommended her involvement on the Glenn boarding party. I was the one who recommended your involvement. He knows her strengths and is willing to allow her the opportunity to use them. To, to be clear, though, He's not trusting her. She still needs to earn that trust back. He has her under the supervision of a number of others, specifically Stamets and Landry, and those those are two people that are not going to put up with any problem. We can learn a lot from Saru here. At a high level, he shows how we should communicate with our team, clearly and directly. But beyond that, and more specifically, he shows how to handle a problematic team member, especially one that you don't have the authority to send on their way. We learned quite a bit about Lorca in his two main interactions with Burnham. We talked about those earlier. The first time, he was very authoritative. He he made it very clear he was going to get his way. Second time, though, when the, they beam into engineering, he is much more effective. See, he uses the idea of enrolling Burnham in his vision. This is a powerful tactic that you can use in every aspect of your role as a leader. Day to day, this is a great way to convince people to do the, the small things in their job that move you towards achieving your goal. This falls along the lines of what we talked about in the Homestead episode, asking for help instead of telling someone what to do. But this kind of takes it to a higher level. If you don't share my vision and I ask you to help do something, 
you're a lot less likely to help than if we do share a vision. As an example, let's say we have one person whose vision is to serve their lifetime prison sentence and not cause any problem. And we have someone else whose vision is to reinvent the way people travel, like, like radically change it, and in a way that is demonstrably and terrifyingly dangerous. That person asks the first person to contribute to a war effort without sharing their vision. Well, we I think we can likely agree that that person is probably going to tell them to take a hike. But in this case, the second person, Lorca, takes the time to enroll the first person, Burnham, into his vision. He shows the power and the potential of the spore drive. He appeals to her personal value set by speaking to both her desire to explore and seek out new civilizations, as well as her desire to end the Klingon war. You help start a war. Don't you want to help me end it? He shares his vision and aligns it with her values. This this is not oh, this is not a simple task. In this case, early in the episode, he shared that he had read and reread her file as well as the court martial record. He's done his homework. He understands who she is and is able to align his vision to her. And through this, enrolls her in that vision. He makes her a part of it. Now, now that he's done that. When he asks her to contribute to the war effort to cause problems, as it were, at least at least compared to her initial intention, well, she's, she's a lot more likely to agree. For you, or, or really at least for me, this is a lesson that can be an absolute game changer when it comes to change management. Now, I'm not talking the project side of change, right? The task-oriented, waterfall, agile, water gile, PMBOK, whatever, whatever side of change. But the people side of change. You can have the best project, right? You can meet all your milestones. Heck, you can even come in under budget. But if the people aren't ready, that project, hey, that project's going to fail. If you're leading a change effort, share the vision early. Share it often. In fact, if it feels like you're doing it too often, do it just a little bit more. Show the power, show the potential of the project and the change, just like Lorca does with the Spore Drive. If you want to go to that next level, align the vision for the change with your team's values, po possibly even each person's individual values. Enroll them in the vision for the change and they will be much more likely and possibly even eager to help be sure it's a success. Lorca takes time, he even spends resources to do this for Burnham. They're in engineering for a good chunk of time, in fact, takes up almost the entire last act of the episode. He spends that time because he knows he's introducing wild and almost really inconceivable concepts to her. Now in our world, generally, we aren't creating propulsion systems based on mycelial spores, but the change from Skype to Teams, for example, or Office 2016 to Office 365 can be just as wild and inconceivable to your teams. I can remember when the organization I was working for upgraded to Office 2007. It's going back a little ways. There's one group that was almost violently insistent that they still needed to use Office 97 because of some reason that was ridiculous to a reasonable person. But it was the most important thing in the world to the people impacted by the change. Enrolling someone or a team into your vision takes time a lot more than part of an act of a tv show but it is well worth it beyond that he expended resources right he grabbed a cylinder of the spores used for the drive to demonstrate their ability now these aren't necessarily 
precious or rare, but they do hold a high value. It's stated earlier in the episode that they grow their own, and, and that, that's got to take time. He knows, though, that by enrolling her in his vision, he will reap so much more than the value of a single cylinder of spores. And yes, this means that you too shouldn't shy away from spending resources on your change effort, the, the, the people side of the change effort. This could be as simple as allowing people paid time to learn about the change or investing time in user testing. It can be a lot more elaborate, like bringing in experts on the change or others that have been through similar projects to speak or spend time with your teams. But the the resources, the resources are always going to be unique to whatever the change effort is. But the lesson here, the lesson is that your return on investment will be significant if you can share and align your vision and manage the people side of change effectively. Now, while we learned a lot about him and, and from him in these interactions, we learn a lot more about him from others. Saru and Stamets, Stamets especially, seem to have very little love for Lorca. In fact, I'd say Stamets has very little respect for him. I think Saru will always respect the rank and the uniform to a point that, that, that Lorca will be a shining light for him at some level until he's not, right? But in the meantime, Saru, Saru's going to fall in line. Landry, on the other hand, seems to be all about Gabriel Lorca, but it takes only a few minutes with her to, to, to see why. My name's Commander Landry. I'm Chief of Security here. See, we're unloading all kinds of garbage today. She's authoritative. She's aggressive, disrespectful. She talks down to others and belittles their skills. We see this when she recognizes Burnham's Vulcan martial arts training. So we have three people. One, an aspiring officer that clings tightly to the mission, the values of Starfleet. One that is a brilliant scientist that resents the military, and one that thrives on aggressive conflict. Two of the three have very little taste for Lorca. In a recent episode, I, I, think, I think it was uh, Voyager Homestead, we, we talk about performance appraisal. I know, so, so very exciting. But this is an example of the value of a 360 review. This is where you ask colleagues, customers, direct reports, and others that interact with the person for, for feedback. You're going to learn a lot more from a customer they interact with and, and, and hopefully deliver for than you will from your observations in most cases. Here, we learn from Saru that Lorca tends to always get his way and not necessarily in a positive way. Stamets tells us that Lorca is interested in results and sees death and destruction as part of the process. While Landry shows us that he has a taste for violence, especially, especially at the end of the episode when they're interacting in his lab. So while he may have scored an okay appraisal based on his interaction with Michael and engineering, the 360 review reveals wildly concerning aspects to this complex individual. So, is Lorca going to be a captain that consistently impresses, like Janeway? No. Maybe, possibly, right? But, but so, so far, I, 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 would not, I would not bet on that. I am confident, though, that we're going to learn a tremendous amount from him during his time on Discovery. So do you have any examples of successful change management tactics or techniques that you've used or that you've experienced? I'd sure love to hear about it. Look, I'm on all the social media at Jeff T. Aiken. Jeff T. as in Tilly. A-K-I-N. And if you've enjoyed the Starfleet Leadership Academy, please feel free to leave a review and, and, and tell a friend or colleague about it. Now, let's see what we're going to watch next time. Working. Season 2 of Enterprise. Sixth episode, Marauders. 
Maybe Archer will get some redemption from us in this one. We'll see next time on the Starfleet Leadership Academy. Until then, ex astris scientia. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric acid. Electric acid.